Welcome to our next episode of The Doc Talk. Thank you again for joining me, Captain Monroe. Um, always a pleasure to see you. Well, it's always a joy to see you as well, Amy. And we're very pleased to have Captain Mike Davey with us today, who is the Vice President of Business Development and Technology for the Halifax Port Authority. And uh, he's down here uh, for our uh, annual uh, joint board meeting and stuff like that. So it's a pleasure to have you. And I just want to point out that we arranged to have sunshine today for a change, considering that it seemed like Atlanta, Canada here in May for about the last two weeks. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. Welcome. Yeah, You're our first guest, uh, our first guest ever on the Doc, Doc Talk uh, podcast. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about the Port of Halifax and what you all doing up there. So the Port of Halifax is one of 17 uh, Canadian uh, port authorities that are managed under the Canada Marine Act. So there are there are focused ports as far as the supply chain goes. Um, Halifax is the is the biggest port on on the east coast as far as uh, the harbor goes um, and, and and the port areas. Um, but we're not the biggest port as far as volume goes. Um, I think that's still uh, Montreal um, in the, in the uh, Saint Lawrence River. But Halifax has been uh, focused primarily on trying to grow what we call the Atlantic Gateway. Um, we currently have uh, over 600,000 TU that come through on the container side. Um, we've got 5 uh, billion tons of uh, um, um, general cargo, cargo that come through the port. And of course, we have uh, cruise ships. Uh, so we have uh, up to 200 cruise ships a year, almost 350,000 people this year. Um, so that's turned around quite quickly after COVID. Um, but that's that's what we're focused on. We're focused on, on growing the port to get over a million containers through the port and the gateway uh, into Central North America, as well as the cruise business. Uh, and uh, we're trying to do that in the next sort of 20 to 30 years. It's a unique, uh, it's a very deep port navigationally and everything. And uh, it's where the convoys would uh, be assembled from Portland, Maine being one place and, and the convoys up in uh, Halifax. And of course, you've got two facilities up there. You have the South facility, and then you have the one in Bedford Basin. And uh, they're now both operated by the Singapore Port Authority. That's right. Yeah. So PSA International took uh, those two container terminals over uh, two years ago. Um, and now we have one terminal operator, which is, a, which is an advantage um connected by an eight kilometer stretch of uh, a rail line so we have a number of projects to try to take trucks off the downtown uh, core uh, of the city um and, and we're working on one now that, that will reduce those uh, truck numbers up to 75 percent um and essentially the trucks will will come into the the, uh, the north terminal in Bridgeview cove which is the basin terminal um, which is restricted by the two bridges we have in halifax mm -hmm. as far as the size of the ship that goes there and those containers will go on rail back and forth to the to the south end. So essentially, we're setting up the south end terminal to be a a, a ship to rail terminal, with with and, the, and that is what will grow the gateway as far as uh, containers that that are just coming to go to go right into uh, Central North America, um, and the other terminal will be focused on sort of the uh, the regional local truck traffic. We've seen some of your cargo head down into the Midwest and certainly, uh, you know, some of your bulk cargos because you handle a fair amount of bulk cargo as well 
out of there, you get um, you know aggregate out of the Cancel Straits and places like that. Uh, and uh, while it's difficult to tell the difference between a Canadian rock and a U.S. rock, I know that a lot of it does wind up eventually moving down, you know, if it's transferred from rail, moving down the river system, you know, on there. And, and you've also were a, a, a good partner with us uh, in Boston. Uh, when I was the deputy director down in Boston, uh, we found that uh, the same ship that would call on Halifax would eventually call on Boston and then, you know, cycle south to places like Norfolk and place, you know, before they return back to Europe. The ships are getting bigger and you're one of the few ports that can really handle a deeper draft ship. Yeah, I mean, that's the unique um, advantage of Halifax is that uh, it's it's one of the largest, if not the largest ice-free uh, port in the world, we can take uh, up to in excess of uh, um, 24,000 TU ships um, with, with, with no restrictions to the to the South End Terminal. Um, we've got a very good program as far as training, refresher training um, that the Atlantic pilots um, run through, and, and we just finished some simulations in the sim in the in the marine simulator in Quebec City actually a few months ago to refine the operations between the pilots and the tugs. Um, to get these larger vessels um, through. We have a number of different channels that, that we can do that with now. So it's a great advantage, but it also takes a lot of uh, work, a lot of collaborative work, just because of the nature of the regulatory environment of Canada. The ports don't own the pilotage authority. Um, they, they work under, under the pilotage act. They work for the Minister of Transport, much, much like we work for the Minister of Transport to manage the port. So it's a collaborative effort between the Coast Guard who runs the vessel traffic service the tugs and the pilots um, um, who uh, support that and then terminal operator. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the collaborative effort because in keeping up with the, the mission and the focus of the International Association of Marine uh, Import Executives, right? Along with the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminals, one of our main missions is to unify operations and, and what's happening in this area that you know may be implemented in a different area, you know, increasing our efficiencies, increasing our effectiveness, just learning from others. And so one of the reasons that we wanted to invite you today to talk with us is what are you doing in Canada that you know could potentially be looked at from the US standpoint? Um, I know that you do have some challenges with the 17 ports in Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that you're having? Sure. So I'll talk about, uh, I guess, innovation is a good place to start. I mean, innovation brings efficiencies. Um, and what, what we've what we've seen uh, since I've been there is that if you're at the forefront of innovation, you need to make some decisions on empowering um, some innovative techniques to be used, then you're going to be a bit further ahead. But that's not that's not governed by by um, sort of any formal regulatory um, construct um, as yet. Um, there's been a, a major review um, of Canadian ports under, under the, the uh, Port Modernization Review that is coming to a close and there's some recommendations and some legislation that's, that's going through and, and innovation is part of that. But I, I would say that, that a number of ports are ahead of the government on, on innovation. So what we did in Halifax is we, we uh, started up uh, what's called a living lab um, called the PEER. And that's an acronym that, that stands for uh, Port Innovation Engagement and Research. And essentially what we do in there is we have, we have uh, almost 50 companies that, that work in there in and around the transportation logistics and uh, supply chain sectors and they solve problems and they help us solve problems. Maybe not specifically for the Port of Halifax, but they, they solve problems for the supply chain that if, that if, uh, that if useful, 
their companies will do, will do well. Um, and, and they'll also be able to help the government in, in making some of these decisions maybe a bit earlier on changing regulations to meet those technological advances that can help with the supply chain. So on the innovation side, I think um, we're doing a lot. There's a number of different um, constructs out there. Montreal has a very different uh, construct uh, and the innovation center that they manage. And Vancouver has, has uh, a different uh, 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 construct as well. But I think innovation is, is, is the key. And if the government isn't going to, to push you hard enough to do it, you kind of have to get, get, a, get out there ahead of your ski tip sometimes and, and do those things so that uh, you can see some, some value for, for, for what you're doing. I love that. And so the, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has told us recently that they're emphasizing or putting more emphasis on their research and development and using more innovative approaches and techniques. And I think it's kind of what you're speaking of, but you're doing it more on the, on the private side, whereas the core is doing it, you know, on the public side. Am I am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, I would love to have a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. <laughs> <laughs> they seem they seem to be able to be able to solve a lot of problems uh, in, in the U.S., which is which is great. But I think I think yeah, you're right. So you know, we're our model is essentially we have some large corporate sponsors that are helping us move this move this ahead. Um, other models are the government provides a lot of funding to sort of help these things. Well, the government hasn't provided funding for this. We're doing this on our own. Um, we don't really have an extensive borrowing limit, as as you would think. And so, because of capital projects and, and you know in, increasing in, in operational uh, expenditures uh, for things like supporting uh, IT and cybersecurity issues, things get pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. And so, so this kind of has to stand on its own. Um, and the return on investment isn't necessarily going to be a monetary return on investment. The return on investment you're going to get is hopefully the, 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 the living lab breaks even, but if it makes money, you get to re-roll that money into, into, into future projects. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit different system, and, and I have to say it's a great facility. Um, I, we just did the, uh, the training program for your senior personnel, right. and we had uh, personnel from other ports as well in Canada who came to um, the MPE program, the, inter the international version, right? Uh, so the nice thing about that was that I, I got to see Aimskip was there, CN was there, you know, and a lot of your carriers and stuff were all located in this facility. And I personally feel that the private sector uh, can drive innovation better than the public sector can because the public sector is always being tackled by politics. You know, well, you know, maybe we need some money over here. We try, they, they always try to spread this out all over the place. So the, the different areas that where you have the private sector there, but coordinated and, and enhanced through funding, you know, by the by the public sector works very effectively, I think. And I think that was very nice. And certainly in talking with your folks, you know, I think people could see, you know, there's not necessarily a, a great return on the amount of money that you might make from it. The fact is that you're bringing a lot of innovation into play is is a critical factor, yeah. you know. And you know, I'll use for example lobsters. You know, for years, you know, uh, lobsters were moved out of Canada. They're actually Maine lobsters that work their way north and get caught up there. <laughs> I like they, how you did that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, they working with Dalhousie uh, University and Maersk put together this program where they could export uh, lobsters, you know, in containers, you know, with less loss and everything. So the the in the reality in all of this 
is that you see that innovation because it's profit oriented, right? And you see that innovation coming out of centers like this. Uh, but you also, you know, uh, we're dealing with issues, you know, and of course I've always pointed out in the course that there's a great synergy between Canada and the United States. I mean, you all do the same thing that we do. Um, and uh, we, we follow the same systems. Uh, you know, your rules and regulations and your laws are very similar to ours and stuff like that. Uh, and the one big thing that I harp on, certainly in the United States, is, you know, we really need a comprehensive transportation policy, you know, in the United States, which uh, we see more of it in Canada and Mexico. But, uh, you know, has that benefited? Has that, have you seen the, the practical results of that, the way you do things up there? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good comment because the transportation uh, regulations in Canada aren't, aren't bad. It, the problem is, is that we don't really have a, a national supply chain agenda. We don't have a national trade strategy, if you want to call it that. And so because, because of that, you know, we have, we have the longest coastline in the, in the world, our country. I think we're the, the third largest country in the world. We only have 37 million people that live in Canada. So the revenues <laughs> that are generated to run the government are, are, are minute in scale compared to to our friends to the south and, and and in other countries. And so the problem is there's only so much money to go around. And I think that has that has caused the system to be to be far more uh, political, if you want to call it that. Um, just just just, and that's just the reality of, of where it is. And so. You know, you, you wouldn't want to, to, to designate, let's say, Halifax as the Atlantic Gateway, where all the money for infrastructure and expansion would go to Halifax, but not to other 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 ports that, that, that could benefit from some of that funding. And so I think I think there's more political reasons than anything else um, why, why we haven't changed that. Um, there's a fantastic uh, study that was done uh, 18 months ago through the National uh, Supply Chain Task Force that the government, uh, the Ministry of Transportation, uh, kicked off. Um, it was it was a number of great forums, great discussions. They put out a report with some fantastic recommendations, and you know myself, like every, everyone else in, in this industry, is, is is waiting hopefully that the government will will enact those recommendations because this this goes to exactly what what, what you're saying and what what we've been talking about, um, which is you know you have to make some tough decisions in order to find the, the efficiencies you want for, for a national supply chain. And, and if you don't do that, then you're going to be left with, with, what, with what you have now, which is you basically have to fight to get funding to, to, to do your job. And, and we shouldn't be there. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get some change in that area. I was very happy when Amy uh, informed our listeners about the expansion of the Marine Highway Program. You know, which now involves Canada. Yeah. So the administration's focus to increase, you know, business and transportation and throughput from and to and from um, the U.S. to Canada um, is interesting. Um, you know, what can we do as U.S. transportation professionals doing business with Canada to increase those opportunities? What do you see in your mind? as the maybe the, the biggest need, if you will, what's what's the big whale, what's the big fish, what, what could we be doing here in the United States to be a better transportation partner with Canada? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. So I know, you know, from experience that, uh, you know, the, the agreement that Canada and the U.S. manage, um, the, the sort of the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway system is, is a great model for that. I, I think it's probably underutilized as far as you want to call it driving commercial 
um, opportunities. Um, but I think, you know, when you think about all the inland waterways and the opportunities to move um, goods and people on the water rather than on a truck or a train, I don't think we take advantage of that. Right. And if you look at, at many other countries, especially in Europe, um, Australia is another good example where where they just they just have a common sense approach to it and 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 get over some of the regulations they already have and try to try to change those regulations and and much much like the united states has as regulatory um constraints against what vessels can can, can come in and out of the coastal regions of the u.s that canada has the has a similar uh, construct and so finding easy solutions is easy until you get to that regulatory yeah. spot and someone says yeah. you can't do that and so you know, we, we've been working with a number, you know, you mentioned Boston. I mean, that, that was a great example of, uh, of uh, you know, inshore in shipping and, 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 and a, a connected um, routing by the, the water um, that made sense and, 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 and it worked. Um, we sort of got away from that, I think, is, is in Canada, especially in thinking in those terms, partly because of the regulatory impact. But I think what I can say is, you know, we do need to work together and kind of push those issues so that if we can find those common grounds to change the regulations, that, that we can do it through a number of what they call them trials or whatever you want to call exactly. it, to, to, to see the benefits of that. Exactly. And a couple of examples come to mind for me, and, and maybe, you know, this sounds silly or minute, but, you know, even something as simple as, so we have the Jones Act, you know, in the United States, and I'm sure it sounds like you have a similar type of Jones Act in Canada. Or maybe it's the weight limits, like on just those semi trucks itself. You know, what if we're at 88,000 pounds per truck and Canada is at, I don't know, 80,000? What are those regulatory pieces that do need to change in order for us to be better tra trade partners? Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I've always, you know, and I know my, my fellow merchant mariners, you know, I'll be looking under my car with a mirror after I say this, but one of the things that I have been an advocate for, even uh, when I was very active uh, in Boston and here in Portland was the unification of the cabotage law for Canada and the United States under a single uh, regulatory framework, whereas uh, the United States would recognize Canadian flag vessels, you know, for their trade, and uh, certainly uh, Canada would recognize U.S. Uh, flag vessels in their trade. Uh, and I know that uh, CETA is still out there. Nothing's really happened with the, uh, the Canadian-European uh, Trade uh, Alliance. Uh, but one of the big concerns that we've always had is that, well, you know, if if the Jones Act goes away and everything like that, you know, we're going to see Chinese flag yeah. towboats up and which I don't think it would ever get to that, you know. But I think certainly the synergies between the U.S. and Canada exist that uh, extending our trade into Canada, Canadian trade. And I don't. 37 million people are oftentimes concerned about what goes on. You know, we, we you know, sneeze down here and sometimes Canada catches a cold. But that, that should not be an issue. Just like, you know, a number of years ago when Mr. Harper proposed, you know, a unification of the customs. You know, can we open up the borders a little bit more and do that? Uh, and I'm, I'm very anxious to see what's going to happen with CSX. Now that CSX has picked up Pan Am Railways, you know, is that going to improve a connection between Halifax and how's that going to impact the ports on the U.S. East Coast and everything like that? But I think what certainly what you've recognized, Amy, in your world, right, it's never about one mode of transportation. Right. You know, it's about the flexibility of transportation. <clears throat> and I think what happens is a lot of our ports get very comfortable 
you know, with, you know, we're focused on one thing. We love containers, you know, we love automobiles, you know, we forget about the fact that a, a successful port is one that's diverse. And the Inland River ports are certainly focused on diversity. You know, you, you'd love to get into container on barge, but don't hang your hat on just container on barge. I would love to get into container on barge and, and utilizing, I feel like the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway to, to kind of you know, catapult us into that market would be absolutely phenomenal. I look at the Great Lakes is almost um, that gateway that we currently have in the Gulf, right? Where, you know, those containers, the container ships and those vessels can come into the Gulf, you know, we can transload into a barge and ship up. And I almost feel like it's the same top-down kind of approach, you know, through the through the Great Lakes, transload onto a barge and, and then send it down into the heartland. I would love to get into that. Um, but I do want to ask you about workforce. Uh, you really haven't mentioned it as a as a challenge at this point. What are you seeing in the Canadian workforce market? Is there a challenge or are you comfortable with the workforce uh, pool that you have? Yeah, that's a good question because uh, I'm sure um, as much as you guys are challenged with, with, uh, with uh, the availability of, of workers, not just workers, but properly trained workers, we're, we're on the same boat, so to speak. So unintended. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the past uh, 10, 10 to 15 years in the marine sector in Canada, across across the sector and across the country, we've, we've had a shortage of young people who not necessarily aren't interested in, in, in the industry. They don't know enough about it. So um, we started uh, doing something recently. Uh, we hired a, an expert uh, Dr. Sherry Scully, who works for us as our director of workforce development, and she works out of the pier, out of the out of the uh, living lab. And so, what she's trying to do is she's trying to say, okay, so we have a current construct. It's 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 out of date. Some would say it's a bit archaic on 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 how on how those guys uh, and and girls support what's happening in and around port. Um, what's what's the gap between what 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 the, what they're doing now and maybe what they could be doing? And then what is the future workforce going to look like when you start talking about some of the technological advances that might take away a job that someone's doing right now, but offer a host of opportunities um, in, 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 in either the similar job doing that remotely or, or perhaps that job is automated, but other jobs come, come out of things like uh, automation. And so at least we're having those discussions now in Canada, but um, you know, you'll see that the, uh, um, the ILA workers uh, on the west coast of Canada are are are, are striking. They're, they're they're in a strike position. They're they're not happy that there doesn't seem to be any any change there between uh, you know what the employers and and the unionized workers are are able to come to a compromise. Partly because um, we're in a new era. And I was talking about this earlier uh, with, with Jeff. You know we we have some new people who are working at the port who come with new ideas about how how the port should be. Um, uh, operating and how it should be, you know, looking after the port um, from uh, from a sustainability point of view. And so, you know, when you have um, uh, longshoremen who are now worried about their their work life balance, well, you have to have those discussions. And you have to be able to come to come to some some compromises and, and solutions because younger folks in that world they want to use their phone to be able to manage where they're working and and and, and how they're working. And so there has to be a transition. And so that's one of the things we're doing with our workforce development initiative is, is trying to close the gap that currently exi exists and then trying to come up with some, some ways, um, not only to get um, people aware of the challenges 
and the jobs and the opportunities that exist on, on the marine side. Um, but we have uh, a lot of um, um, uh, folks um, regionally and across the country. So our, our First Nations, our, our, our Aboriginal um, uh, peoples, as well as uh, African Nova Scotians in, in Nova Scotia, you know, they, they don't even uh, have the opportunity to get into some of these sectors because they don't even know that, that these jobs are available just because of, of, of the way um, that, that we've set up our education system. And so, you know, we're looking at all of these things to try to come up with some ideas on, on how to, 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 to spread awareness and, and, and really um, try to make a difference so that when we go to introduce technology, um, we're not going to be caught off guard, that, you know, that, that the institutions have courses ready to go and people are interested in, in applying uh, for those. So a deeper synergy be, certainly between you have, you know, the Nautical Institute up there, you That's know, right, up yeah. in uh, Cape Breton and stuff. You know, uh, recently we had the unfortunate circumstance of uh, seeing two brave firefighters who lost their life on a ship in New York. And uh, I know that uh, the Canadian ports take on much more of the responsibility in regard to security you know, uh, harbor activities and stuff like that, even firefighting and emergency response and everything like that. Um, and it's it's not universal in the United States where some of the ports we did in Boston, we have the Marine Incident Response Team that was put together and we trained all the firefighters, but it took a pile of money out of our pocket, but well worth it because one life is, is well worth, you know, whatever you spend on and stuff like that. What are some of the things that you do to, to get your firefighters and your emergency response people, you know, tuned into these changing ship designs? Yeah, and that's that really is a complicated uh, problem to solve um, because, of course, the, the regulations in Canada aren't clear as, as they probably aren't as clear as they should be in the United States as, as far as who's responsible for, for marine uh, safety and security and firefighting. Uh, and so a lot of the cities and uh, the municipalities have taken up, you know, the torch to say, well, I'm, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to create, um, you know, a fire brigade or, or a, a marine security force. And then some, and some of the, the, uh, the uh, cities have done that. But because there's no consistent approach, um, and unfortunately, um, you know, at, at the federal level, um, the public safety department really has taken hold of this issue and, and resolved it. Um, as you say, ports are left to come up with, with some ideas on how to, to tackle that themselves. So, you know, we're lucky in Halifax. We're lucky because we have um, uh, a big Coast Guard base in Halifax. We have the Navy as the largest uh, base in Halifax. And so with both of those entities come uh, vessels that are, that are capable to react to uh, security, environmental, um, um, and, and, and um, you know, firefighting capabilities. Um, and so the, the sad part is, is that, and, and as, as the example that, that you gave really shows the criticality of this, you know, the city's fire department are left nine times out of 10 being the ones that are, mm -hmm. uh, that, that are there to respond, but they're not properly trained and they don't have the proper uh, equipment to go on board a ship and, and fight, fight, a, fight a fire. So what we've been doing is we've been working with uh, our firefighters in the city of Halifax plus the D&D firefighters and having discussions. Um, we're developing uh, memorandums of understanding of how the D&D fire, firefighting uh, group can train um, some of the, uh, the Halifax uh, Fire Department folks um, to be able to at least, you know, have a general knowledge of the layout of the ship, be able to go on the ship, understand the firefighting systems um, to the point that, that they could safely go on there to help if, if, if they needed to. But that's only sort of 
a very small first step. We're doing things like looking at uh, at some vessels we can procure with some firefighting capabilities. We're working with with the Navy to to sort of rethink um, their purchase of of a, of a fire tug, as an example. I saw that the uh, the fire tug here in, uh, in Portland. And the interesting thing is, is that it was built in Canada, by the way. Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> interesting is, yeah, it was built in Canada, and it's not a very big vessel, but it but it it does what what you would need it to do. Um, as, as as far as an, an on water presence, um, when, when you when you have whether whether it's a, a building that faces the water or whether there's a ship alongside or an anchor, and so those are the type of things that that you know we we have to uh, we have to I guess I would say accelerate um, because there's been too many years of talking about mm. things and not really doing anything, and so um, we we recently uh, added that to our tariffs. And so part of part of Harbor Dues coming to Halifax is 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 for marine firefighting, and every and we're gonna we're gonna take that money and we're gonna we're gonna put it to use. I think this is this is certainly one of the things that would be very universally worked out between the U.S. and Canada. We developed right. a standard that would cover the inland operations as well as as uh, coastal operations because you know Canada is a little bit different in regards to utilization of your Department of National Defense um, if you're Prime Minister wants to send the the troops in, he can do so. In the United States, of course, it has to be requested by the governor. But uh, we have a number of firefighting facilities here in the States that are run by the government. Maritime Administration uh, runs them. Uh, Texas A&M is probably one of the finest, you know, that you have out there. Uh, and if there was a universal standard for training, and it's under, under CFRs, but it's, it's vague. Right. And wouldn't it be wonderful if you had a system in place where you can have a program because fighting a fire on an inland river is different. Totally different. Yeah. And the infrastructure that you impact, right? So if you have a barge and a tow that's, you know, on fire and you're approaching a lock structure, you know, the damage to a lock and a dam could now totally impact the community to which it serves and protects, right? So absolutely crucial. And I really feel like the IMPE through its course offerings, you know, with the marine terminal operations that is focusing on emergency response is a really great catapult into, you know, educating transportation professionals on emergency response. So we're actually doing our very first inland marine terminal operator training in Memphis mm -hmm. uh, in September. And I'm so excited um, about that program because it's going to be the first introduction into what it goes, what what it takes, and what's involved in inland marine terminal operating, including emergency response. Just we have, and we're very fortunate. And one of the discussion points at the board meeting will be the development of: is it appropriate for IAMPE? You know, now that we have a universally accepted, uh, a worldwide accepted uh, certification for managers and professionals to do something in the firefighting realm. I mean, we have some great uh, members on the advisory committee. Uh, who basically uh, have been training people in shipboard firefighting and ship and ship operations and everything to be able to offer that to uh, the firefighters. Uh, we had had the unique experience of taking a group of firefighters out in the Patriot State a number of years ago when we first developed the Marine Incident Response Team. They had all the turnout gear and they had everything on board. And we said, okay, there's a fire up in the folks, right? So the first thing they went up there is they wanted to do two things. They wanted to get in there to see if there's anybody need to be rescued. Right, and somebody wanted to cut through the steel with their fire axe. Oh. Right, <laughs> so okay. you began to realize that there were some great limitations here. And one of the concepts that we talked about was that sometimes you have to sacrifice a life to save a ship, which is very unfamiliar. 
you know, to, to average firefighters and stuff like that. And what was nice about it is we took all the trainers out with us. And so the trainers trained the rest of the personnel because firefighters learn best from other firefighters. And I think in the long run, how it worked out was that um, we average, managed to train several thousand folks, you know, in the course of all of this in and around Boston. And it's, it's happened in other locations, but wouldn't it be nice if we had a universal standard where we said, you know, if you're from Halifax, if you're from New York City, if you're Absolutely. from, if you're from, you know, uh, the, anywhere on the Great Lakes or anyone in the Inland Rivers, come to school, learn about basic structure and everything like that. And then through a program, go into Marine firefighting because Marine firefighting, certainly in the firefighting courses that I've been through, you know, they have uh, the SS Never Sail, you know, where you go in there and they, they you know, light diesel fire underneath you and you got to put it out, you know? So I mean, that's a whole different experience. And it is so exciting to think of that. Again, I just wanted to thank you for being our inaugural, uh, you know, guest on the, on the Doc Talk podcast. I hope that you consider coming back and joining us because I have oh, way more uh, questions than what we had time for today, but sincerely, thank you. I certainly will. Yeah. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank well, and let us officially welcome you to the Board of Advisors of the International <laughs> Association of Maritime Port Executives. Nice to have you aboard. Captain Monroe, as always, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. Admiral Andrus, it's nice to have you as well. <laughs> Thank you.